Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. This week it's a Failure Peace Quickie, because everybody deserves a little quickie around Christmas time, uh-huh. to discuss The Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, a interesting Rennie Harlan film from the mid-90s starring the inimitable Gina Davis. Uh, so I'm your amiable co-host Tim. Joining me as always is... Catherine. And, uh, and, and, and you, Catherine, if I may say, are in the midst of big life stuff, TM. Yeah. Um, so we're probably going to have a little break in recording as you uh, move a fair distance. Yeah, about 5,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> to begin uh, your new life in, uh, is it Zuropa? Is that the name <laughs> of the continent? I, I, think, I think that's the one Bono mentioned. Um, but uh, no, you're starting a new job far, far away in a galaxy known as Sweden. Yep. Um, and so you're going to be getting settled over there, getting set up. And then once you're in place, we'll start working on our, our failure piece project again. But I uh, want to give you plenty of time. Just wanted to take a moment and say congrats. It's a Thank huge you. opportunity. I'm super excited for you. Not only as your brother, but as your, 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 your podcast co-host. <laughs> Very excited for you. I can't wait. Um, but. It's it's going to be great. I'm super excited. Um, but we're we're here to talk about a film, and, and you picked this one. Uh, we were talking about holiday films, and of course, you know, the joke, hey, what about Die Hard? That's a Christmas movie, which I, I'm firmly in that camp. I am. Yeah. But that led us to a discussion of another sort of, I'm going to say somewhat forgotten 90s action film at this point, but that has a direct lineage to those kinds of 80s action classics, yeah. right? And that is The Long Kiss Goodnight, directed by Rennie Harlan, the director of Die Hard 2. And right? and it was it was uh me thinking about Rennie Harlan that kind of led me to this this movie. Well, you asked about Christmas movies. And then I suggested uh, you know doing a Rennie Harlan movie because uh, someone posted a cliffhanger gif in in Discord and I don't know it just got me thinking <laughs> that his movies are yes. real weird. I can't. Um, yes. I don't hate them. Like I don't think of nope. them and have nope. like a visceral like hatred that just comes forth. But they are weird movies, and this is a weird movie. This is a weird movie uh, on a couple of different levels. So let's let's. Talk about Rennie Harlan a little bit. Rennie Harlan is a Finnish director. Yeah. Uh, came to the States in the late 1980s. Uh, started working. Um, he had had a, a you know a decently successful start to his film career in Finland. Uh, enough to get some attention. Wound up directing the Die Hard sequel, which was mostly well received. It was basically Die Hard again. Um, but, you know, people enjoyed it. It made money. Bruce Willis, and he had his, like a, his star continued to climb. He had a, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Didn't That's he? right. He did. Uh, I want to say, is it the fifth one? Mm. Um, I don't remember. Well, I uh, mean, it, it says four. a lot. The Dream I Master. don't remember which Nightmare one on Elm Street is. 4. Yeah. So he, he did Nightmare on Elm Street 4 in 88. And then uh, in 90, he did Die Hard 2 and The Adventures of Ford Fairlane which uh, is another very weird movie. Um, those of you who may not be familiar with Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> Do you want to be? problematic comedian uh, under the best of circumstances, uh, and even was at the time. Uh, then he did Cliffhanger, uh, a relatively well, a relatively well thought of Stallone film from the early 90s, his sort of post-Rocky period. There's a lot of cliffhanging. Um, 
there, it is a there title is a that lot delivers. of <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, it is it is pretty clear just, you know, how cliffhangy it is from the beginning. The 90s had a lot of literal movie names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the titles were not difficult <laughs> to figure out. Um but then he starts collaborating with his his soon to be wife, uh, Gina Davis. Now he's he had makes... several more wives since then. So don't think yes. that they're still together or anything. <laughs> no, he's, very uh, much not so. You know, he gets around Hollywood, I guess. Um, uh, which is, I mean, that's fine. That's completely beside the point. But I just remember uh, their collaborations as a couple being sort of this focus. And then it was one of those marriages that when it was over, it was like, oh, well, <laughs> it's sort of like Guy Ritchie and Madonna. Yeah, when that happened. You know, it was like, like this isn't really? going to work, is it? <laughs> That's not going to last, and it didn't. Um, so he he produced a movie called Speechless, a Michael Keaton film in in the early '90s that was not well received, but he developed you know feelings for her. They they then because there was a concentrated effort in the '90s to make Gina Davis a thing. Um, she I love her. her own. Because oh, she oh was I do in too. Um, Gina, Gina Davis is one of the trifecta of women that shaped the very, the very understanding of women that I hold today. Um, and that 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 trifecta is Sigourney Weaver, Gina Davis, and Jennifer Connelly. Those those three, pretty much shaped my entire. 80s. Yeah, they and, and they shaped what I find attractive in women, uh, both intellectually, physically, you know, spiritually, I don't know, all, all of the, the illies. Um, and, and, and Gina Davis is definitely wrapped up in that for a lot of movies like this. But so in the nineties, she, you know, we, we have Beetlejuice of course, where, you know, she's brilliant and, and wonderful in that role. Um, then she does, you know, Thelma and Louise with Ridley Scott. She's got uh, a league of our own, which you know blows up, becomes one of Tom Hanks's, you know, early, well, not early, but an, another Tom Hanks success <laughs> on his train to one of his success many town. successes. And and then she starts getting into um, action films. Um, like I said, there was a concentrated effort to sort of poise or, or push Gina Davis as an, as an action heroine. Right. And she had some genre chops. She'd been in the fly, right. She's, you know, absolutely had, had sort of made a mark with those films. Well, I mean, I think we can um, just say what the movie was because it was one movie where people said, no, no, thank you. Yes. The turning point in the ascension of Gina Davis to, to, you know, ultimate superstardom was her first full collaboration with Rudy Harlan. <laughs> That, of course, was Cutthroat Island, uh, a pirate movie when people did not want a pirate movie. Um, a couple years later, seven years, eight years later, they did want a pirate movie and it just had to have Johnny Depp in it. But Cutthroat Island was not well received. And I still and wonder, film, like, what was it about that short change? Because they're both very bad, cheesy movies in many respects. But the sure. Disney oh, one... Yes. It had that Disney magic that somehow made it, it work. It had, and it didn't have, game. and it didn't have the Rennie Harlan that we're going to get to. Um, but so the after Cutthroat Island, a scant ten months after the release, an absolute failure of Cutthroat Island, this film releases the Long yeah. Kiss Goodnight, which was already in development, was already in the pipeline, was already finished. 
um, by the time Cutthroat Island's true disaster status was reached. And, and we'll talk about Cutthroat Island at some point um, because it is truly in one of the epic. It's the water. It, it was it's the water world lever failure before water world. Yeah. And I, I think time, I, I think even in a lot of respects, Waterworld gets unfairly picked on when movies like yeah, Water- Rhode Island existed. <laughs> Waterworld isn't actually a bad movie. It's bloated. It's overlong. It takes itself far too seriously. But it's actually okay in terms of its filmmaking. Cutthroat Island, not so much. Yeah. Um, but so this movie happens. But this movie has another lineage. It's not just a Rennie Harlan joint. It's a Shane Black joint. And so we've talked about Shane Black before. We'll talk about Shane Black again. Uh, But Shane Black is, without a doubt, one of the formative and foundational writers that established what an 80s action movie was. Um, I think he graduated from UCLA um, screenwriting program. He wrote a spec script, got some attention. Ended up doing rewrites on a bunch of stuff in Hollywood, including Predator, which he was also then given a speaking role in the film. He appears in it. Uh, he is the the dark-haired white guy that doesn't have glasses. Or that does have glasses. Isn't it? Yeah, he's, he's the one that does have glasses. It makes the bad jokes in the helicopter. That is Shane Black. And, and Shane Black went on to write uh, the Lethal Weapon series, at least the first one and the second one, or at least mm-hmm. did it. A version of the draft of the second one um, got frustrated after lethal weapon two fell apart, or at least his version of it. Um, mostly because the studio uh, black insisted on killing Murtaugh at the end of the film or Riggs. He insisted on killing Riggs at the end of the second one to end the series, you know, and go out that way is very dark. And the studio was absolutely against that. They clashed. Uh, he walked from the project and, and split uh, $250,000 with his co-writer as opposed to the several million dollars that he would have gotten for the finished script. Um, goes on hiatus, and he comes back with this script for The Long Kiss Goodnight. And he is paid by Universal $4 million for this script. That seems like a lot, considering uh, what the script was. Yeah, because this script is is fairly unique. Uh, the synopsis of this film is not something that you've never seen before. Shane Black is not, in in my opinion, humble estimation, a guy who writes original work. What no, he does, is, in fact, he wrote a movie that is almost entirely built out of tropes. Like he wrote Last Action Hero, so right. he clearly understands how to bolt together an action movie because that is the literal joke of last action hero. It's just Mm -hmm. that movie, that script was in the hands of John McTiernan, who is really good at getting the most out of scripts. I think exactly, (laughs) which is something that Rennie Harlan is not capable of. Let's let's briefly talk about 1980s action directors because 1980s action directors, there's really only a few names you have John McTiernan predator die hard. The list goes on. You have Michael Mann kind of doing his Coke-fueled thing, mm-hmm. right? He's he's making his Miami vices, whatever. But then really it comes down to just really one guy, and that is Tony motherfucking Scott. Um, brother of Ridley motherfucking Scott. Rest in peace, sir. Rest in peace, sir. That bridge was too good for you. Um Top Gun, 
yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 2, oh, yeah. which I contend Beverly Hills Cop 2 is the template for the action movie of the 1980s. It is it is the film that defined what that would be. The original Beverly Hills Cop is your standard cop gets into business he shouldn't get into movie. That's all it is. It's funny, it's jokey, but the stakes are pretty low. It's not too insane, but Beverly Hills Cop 2 goes nuts. But it's fun and would eventually lay the groundwork for what Michael Bay would do in the 90s with Bad Boys. Because that's the progression here. McTiernan, Scott, kind of working together in tandem at the same time, making these action, you know, blockbusters. Then Harlan comes in. Right. Sort of doing his little thing in the background, sort of emulating those guys in whatever way that he can. But all of that setup gets immediately transferred directly to Michael Bay after The Rock. Or maybe after Bad Boys. We could argue that perhaps Bad Boys is the turning point for Michael Bay's career. Because, you know, The Rock is it is an action movie, but it's a bit more of like an espionage thriller for a chunk of it. So you might not realize that you're watching an action movie. But by the time that's, that Bay enters the scene, yeah, the bloat had begun, and that's that's really the thing about the Long Kiss Goodnight, is that it feels every ounce the bloated blockbuster action bid that somehow Michael Bay was able to get people to sit down for. Yes, but nobody was wanting to sit down for this. No. Uh, it, it made a little bit of money, but not much. So this is this weird sort of middle point on the fulcrum of the change of the action film because the eighties action film, it's hallmark is that the stakes are very believable, right? Can you believe that John McClane, a cop would sort of be caught in this strange situation in this downtown high rise? Yes. Is it implausible? Absolutely. Is it unlikely? Definitely. But could it happen? Sure. But then we start moving into territory. Okay, and and Lethal Weapon is actually the perfect example of this. The original Lethal Weapon, again, small scale, straightforward, great performance by Mel Gibson, a little bit crazy at the end, but for the most part, kind of believable L.A. cop stuff. It's about Murtaugh and Riggs, and Riggs is crazy. (laughs) It's the enhanced buddy cop movie. That's it. It's Dragnet with Attitude. That's what Shane Black does. Dragnet with Attitude. It's uh, the buddy cop movie with Attitude. Like it's, It's just what he does. Yeah. But then you get to Lethal Weapon 2, and you look at the stakes of Lethal Weapon 2, which, again, Black didn't have that much to do with, but it's still part of this lineage of the 80s action film, or or at this point, early 90s action film. And, I mean, diplomatic immunity, right? Like, the (laughs) stakes are just insane. Now they're fighting inside of a giant shipping warehouse. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The scale has to grow. Um, and, and so, like you said, the bloat begins to creep its way in. And so here we see Shane Black, really, he's doing the spy thriller plus the seventies. He's, I mean, the title gives it away. The long kiss, good night, the long kiss, goodbye. Yeah. Right. Which is the sort of classic seventies Dashiell Hammett adaptation, which everybody loves. Uh, there's one with Elliot Gould. Like it's a great freaking movie it's still yeah, well, great well i mean it it's always a bad sign when when your movie has a clip of a better movie in it because this actually has a clip from of 
Um, belong goodbye. Belong goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and yeah. I, I, like, that's what I thought of when it came up on the screen. I was like, oh, dang. I don't want to watch yeah, that. You gave away the game, Shane Black. What's wrong with you? But, and he's marrying together the, the sort of classic CIA days of the Condor spy thriller with the 70s, you know. But this marriage is going to end in divorce because right. this is not it's, good. <laughs> it's not great. So the premise is simple. A woman washes up on a beach in New England somewhere, some island or whatever. Uh, no memory of her past. So she acclimates to the society. She gets a job as a school teacher. She's fallen in love. She, When she was found on the beach, she was two months pregnant. So she's had a child and she's living this normal ho-hum everyday life. And I already kind of hate it because all of that information is delivered to you in the same way that you just delivered it to us, which is through a voiceover. <laughs> voiceover narration, obviously added in post, not originally scripted. Like it is so obvious that they recorded it after the fact. It sounds like Gina Davis has aged three years. Like her, it's just, it's, it's, she does not remember what movie this was, what it was about. She's just reading <laughs> a description project? off of a page. I don't understand. It's, it's bad. It's, it's really egregious voiceover narration. It's like Harrison Ford blade runner yeah. voiceover. And narration. it's bad. Cause that starts the movie. It is literally the beginning. Um, and so she tells you, hey, I washed up on a beach and, you know, nobody knows who I am. I have these weird inklings. I've hired these detectives to try and research my past, but they don't find anything. So I think I'll just never know. And uh, but the most egregious is the obvious like, well, Gina Davis is this this bombshell. So she's standing in front of her own mirror and in voiceover, she's saying, sometimes I stand in front of the mirror. And just look at my scars. I try to figure out how old I am. And she's just standing naked in front of the mirror. Covered, yeah. but still, it's like, the, oh my god, you guys. The '90s sexism in this is way, bad. way worse <laughs> than a lot of the other action it's movies bad. that were being made. Like, I don't yeah, want to, I, I don't want to overdo the comparisons to somebody like John McTiernan, but like, even even his movies are not as they're not this um, really, really noticeably sexist. Where it's like, ew. Every few minutes, it felt like something was said where they, you know, saying that women were frumpy, women were ugly. It was bad. Um, um, I mean, this it, movie it, stars. Good. Well, I, you know, I just I dealt with it, but yeah, that was the first moment where I was like, oh, it's going to be one of these. It's mm -hmm. this is going to be a difficult throwback. And a lot of this is Shane Black, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, Shane Black's attitudes towards discussions and portrayals of women in film are let's say classical mm. um and, and by saying classical i mean Bad. really horrifically outdated <laughs> and sexist and misogynist uh which we can see the culmination of in predator the predator that's the one he did um, which i still i want to i want to talk about with you because whew, uh is rough i don't think it's his fault it's heavy studio involvement but still but in any case Yes, uh, there is a line in this film where uh, Gina Davis co-leads with Samuel L. Jackson, who was hot, hot, hot. This is post, you know, this is three years post Pulp Fiction. Sam Jackson was doing five to six movies a year, just churning them out. And and this is one of them. And there is a scene where um, Gina Davis is, is needs to shoot some people and he yells at her, shoot these motherfuckers bitch what else are you good for um which <sighs> is intended to be a joke based on the situation but that's the thing but 
This mm. movie, what I find remarkable, and the reason I brought up John McTiernan is I feel like having worked with Shane Black on a movie where those jokes landed, like Last Action Hero had a lot of jokes. It was rapid fire, haha. Mm. <laughs> and for some reason, the jokes work really, really well. But in this movie, they do not. I can sense how they might have. Some of the the jokes, like if if maybe the lines were delivered a little differently or captured differently, every single scene in this movie feels like the first time they turned on the camera. Yeah, I don't think many takes were done here. I don't know if it <laughs> was budgetary or if it was just speed. We we really had a, didn't have much film. I don't know. Um, so the the premise is this woman has lost her memory. She lives on this island. An event takes place that unlocks a previous memory, or at least components of it, and she begins to realize that she may have abilities and skills not fitting with the sort of small-town school teacher that she currently She's is. She's got knife um, skills. Knife skills. Things that chefs do. Yeah. And and that's basically the premise. So, so we're going to blow right into spoilers. Again, this is a quickie. We're not going to spend a, a ton of time talking about Long Kiss Goodnight. It's not really worthy of that kind of analysis if we're being honest but it does pose some some interesting things and bring up some interesting connections so as the sort of bridge between the bloated spectacle filled action films of the late 1990s mostly spearheaded by uh, Michael Bay at this point Long Kiss Goodnight is is this in this unique spot in the tradition of action films and that it is basically produced by one of the guys who became one of the foundational writers of the 80s action film and then became one of the writers who lampooned the very thing that he helped create in things like Last Action Hero, and then who saw him turn almost immediately around and create this, which is not a self-aware parody of the action film, but in some ways is a sort of strange amalgam of genres that doesn't really work. Um, so the, the gumshoe side of it comes from Samuel L. Jackson, who plays the final detective that she chose to hire to find her past, who is a down on his luck, somewhat untrustworthy private detective who runs scams and tricks people into paying him off uh, once he's obtained information on them. He's the crook with the heart of gold. Yeah, he's the he's the, the private investigator who's not a good guy, but you know is a good guy. Yeah, and, and that's a very um, that's a very eighties. Thing to have, you know, the put upon good guy who is also maybe not a great guy. That's very diehard. Um, mm-hmm. It's harder to like Jackson's character in this. Like, Hennessy isn't as likable. And that's kind of amazing that you can make Samuel L. Jackson not likable as a character. But but this borders on it. Yeah, he, he struggles in this film to, to sort of even deliver the shtick that he was undoubtedly hired to deliver. Yeah. Um, his, his humor is, is, is very similar to the types of work he was doing at this point. Um, I, I think really it's not until it's not until his return to, you know, the sort of womb of Tarantino with Jackie Brown a few years after this, that, that people started to realize that Samuel L. Jackson was more than a one note actor that he didn't have to just stand and deliver punchy off the cuff, you know, irreverent lines that he could do more. And, 
and, and that, he's in that transition, you know, but he, like most working actors, was totally willing to take any and every part that he could get his hands on. So the trick of this film, and by God, it's revealed in the credits. Like, I don't know why they even attempted to have a section of the film where we don't know if this school teacher is something because the name of the, of the character, their identity, what they did, it's all revealed in the, the opening credit sequence in the inverted uh, sequences. Cause the credit sequences is our, our main character, Samantha crane is her assumed name. Um, and everything that she's doing is in like standard, you know, sort of film coloration, everything that her opposite or her former self is doing is inverted. And in those inverted sections, it lays everything out. So if you're paying attention during the credit sequence, which granted a lot of people don't, um, the, the entire like plot of the film is laid out for you. Uh, because the plot is this. She is actually a secret agent assassin. For the CIA. Who was on a deep cover mission to murder a man named Daedalus. But... In the course of her mission, she was injured, dropped into the ocean, and got amnesia. And when she washed up on that beach, everybody thought she was dead. And so she's been able to live this double life as this small town, nice school teacher, unbeknownst to her that she is actually a trained murderer of men. <coughs> That's it. That's the gag. It's pretty much the whole flick. So why is the movie so long? Uh, well, it's called <laughs> The Long Kiss Goodnight, and they took it serious. Um, I will say that as, the, as she's making the transition into the CIA killer, there are some fun scenes. Yeah. Um, because uh, Gina Davis, let's not forget, she's, she's a wonderful actress. Gina Davis is an extremely capable actress who can carry a film all by herself. Zero problem. But what happens at the opening of this, and this is this really feels like Harlan not really knowing how to handle this material or, or how to convey what is being expressed on the page about these sort of competing personalities. And so what he chooses to do is as the, the, the character of Charlie, she has a car accident. She runs to do a deer because a guy's trying to grope her in the car. Which, um, to be which fair, I kind of liked the car accident scene. I thought that was sure. like when yeah. she flies out of the windshield, that was really it's good. Really cool. Yeah. Good stunt. Which there is, there are some great stunts in this. Yeah. Uh, we, I guess we should say that the, the latter, I mean, really 35 minutes of this movie, the last 35 minutes is basically one long stunt sequence yeah. with chases and drives and jumping and shooting and martial arts. Like it's, it's a, it's a spectacle, right? Like we, again, we're, we're encroaching upon spe in two years Bruce Willis was going to be drilling into an asteroid to save Earth. Dear God. Like, Why that's where we were headed, <laughs> you guys. That's, that's where we were going as a culture. Steve Buscemi was there. And so was, and, and, and so was that guy who was like, Mr. Jingles? Right, like, like that just, guy. Like, there's so much, so much excess and while I appreciate it in some movies, like I really do genuinely like some excessive movies. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, this one, it, there's nothing right. scaffolding this excess in this movie. Absolutely no. nothing. So as, as she's being revealed 
Harlan chooses to frame it as mirror shots, right? He does the, she's looking in the mirror and then the other personality is, is looking back and she's got like crazy hair and she's got scars on her face. She's like, my name's Charlie and I'm coming for you. It's, it's, it looks like a scene out of a Freddy Krueger movie, which the fact that he directed one of those makes a ton of sense. Um, It looks like, you know, Freddy's about to pop out and be like, you're mine, bitch or whatever. (laughs) And, um, and, but it's Gina Davis. And so like, there are all of these scenes. She, as you mentioned before, she is in the kitchen, like cutting a carrot or something. And all of a sudden she like realizes she can cut super fast and she's throwing knives. And she's like, this is what chefs do or whatever. And it's, it's very awkward and, and it should be a moment that's exuberant, but it's just off putting. Right. Like, cause I think at one point, or in one version of this script, perhaps before it translated to the screen through, through Harlan's vision for it. I think there really probably was some interesting examination of what it might be like to have this other part of yourself slowly reveal it itself to you. Right. And to, to realize that, Oh, you know, where I would have cowered before in this circumstance, now I would attack. That's interesting. Right. There's some cool dramatic things and and action oriented things you could do there. But what we get is the mirror sequences. And then a little girl falls down on an ice rink and Gina Davis picks her up and she's like, life is pain. (laughs) Like like, that's that's how that's how Harlan to, you know, shows us that she's changing. And uh, it's it's just very awkward. Right. It's and and honestly, you, you see this a lot. Well, I'm not going to say a lot, but let's look at, for example, the works of Paul Verhoeven, another sort of seminal 80s action director, but in a different way. Verhoeven is Dutch, and the way that he processes and expresses emotion in film is very different from the way that what we might say a John McTiernan might process emotion on film, right? And, And that's really obvious. And I think to a certain extent, Harlan is kind of in the same boat as Verhoeven. Right. You know, you look at something like Verhoeven, uh, like Robocop and Verhoeven, which is 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 Robocop for the most part is a very restrained film in terms of its emotional tone. Sad. But then it has these bursts of absolute madness. Yeah. That's sort of come out of left field that work very tonally well for the sort of story that Robocop is telling. But something like Long Kiss Goodnight, it does similar things where it's all of a sudden we'll be going along and it's this thing. And then, and then we just take a hard left turn. But in Long Kiss Goodnight, they don't land. Yeah. Right. Those left turns just kind of fall flat or they're bewildering. Um, so we ultimately find that that uh, Samantha, whose real name is Charlie. Charlie Baltimore. Again, if you wanted to see where Shane Black was going with these, his references. These kind of feel like like two different personalities. Like you kind of think that's where the movie's going to go. Right, like that it's going to be some sort of like examination of schizophrenia almost. Yeah, where she's like she's warring back and forth. She's dissociating or something and like this is right. this is how she's coped with some deeper trauma that she experienced, but no. No. Mm-mm. It's just no, a gross the, the, misunderstanding of those things, if anything. Right. Charlie was always there. She just got covered up by Samantha because Charlie was asleep or some yeah. bullshit like that. <laughs> and so a bunch of things happen all at once. Right. And, and we've talked before about how much coincidence 
audiences are willing to accept. Like there's so, you know, we're willing to accept so much coincidence to get into a situation, but less coincidence to get out of it. And, and there's a lot of things coming together at once, right? Like, so Sam Jackson, this, you know, private detective who's supposedly terrible actually does uncover a piece of crucial information that no one else has found about where she lived for a period of time. So that happens. Um, she hits her head and she gets seen on the local news because she's like the winter ball queen or something. And a guy sees her on television in prison or where he is. He's in prison. And so all of this happens at once the same day after eight years of literally nothing happening. And so within that short time span, she is, is completely revealed to be this Charlie Baltimore. Somebody tries to kill her in her own home, which she has to defend herself and ends up destroying her own home. Perfectly fine action scene, typical Shane Black stuff. Shane Black does, uh, I guess we can mention it briefly. Shane Black is a really, really, he's a screenwriter who relies on the same bag of tricks. Yeah. The tricks are very good. And when he employs them well, it's extremely engaging. Not so much here, but his tricks, number one, violate the domestic, right? Take the fight to some place that people know and recognize, and then make them feel uncomfortable and, and, and sort of thrown off by the fact that they're seeing this place get destroyed. So where's the best place to have a fight scene, according to Shane Black? Your kitchen, right? That's the best place to do it. It's why in Lethal Weapon, they end up blowing up Riggs's house and they have all those fights yeah. in the construction, right? It's the same basic concept, right? You go somewhere that feels comfortable and then you take away my comfort. Gina Very Davis throws her daughter out of a hole in the side of their house. She does. It's very exciting. That was amazing. <laughs> um, Shane Black's other uh, trick, place your script during a holiday, usually yeah. Christmas. Uh, all 70% of Shane Black's movies are Christmas movies, right? This one, uh, Lethal Weapon. Uh, last, last Action Hero is set at Christmas. It is completely minimized, but there are Christmas trees everywhere. Mm-hmm. Iron Man 3, uh, Nice Guys, all of them. Now, he says it's because Christmas is a time of renewal. Christmas is a time of opportunity to, to evaluate. That's bullshit, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> you set it at Christmas because you have a set of readily recognizable activities, events, and statements that you can pull from to create scenes. That's it, right? Well, I need Riggs and his wife to have an argument. What could they argue about? He hasn't bought presents for the kids yet. Right. You can argue about Christmas shit. It's, it's a way to, to do the auto relatability to your audience. Like, you know, most of us have holiday stresses, you know, Mm -hmm. even, even people who don't celebrate Christmas can relate to the stress of that particular holiday. Because even if you don't celebrate, you're still subjected to the, you know, consumerist hell that is Christmas. Um, so, you know, it, it gives the audience that automatic touchstone. It, exactly. It's, it's a touchstone and, and black recognizes that because these are, and one of the things that, that make eighties action films so accessible is that they were designed to be accessible, to be understandable. You've got every you've got recognizable situations. You've got 
clear and obvious bad guys, drug dealers, terrorists, whatever, right? Like these movies were designed to be very simple, very straightforward, easy to follow, easy to get into. And having it set at a holiday that is accessible to most people is just another way to get that job done. And black is, is incredibly, you know, effective at doing that. Uh, the predator is set at Halloween. So little different, but same principle. So it's set at Christmas. Um, that sets up a whole bunch of scenes about Christmas things happening, putting candles in the window, right? To light your way home, right? Very Christmassy. So Samantha Kane realizes the, the Charlie personality emerges, takes over, and then she goes on a journey, but a journey to do what exactly? And this is where the movie gets murky. The, the plot of this film, one of the things you can say about most of Shane Black's movies, the plots are very straightforward, intentionally so, so that he can have fun with scenes and dialogues and character interactions. This one, it's almost the opposite. The plot is so over the top. Um, like in, in our pre-discussion, you mentioned how many like weird project names and like code convoluted words for everything. code words for everything. Everybody's got a different name. Everybody's got multiple names. Everybody's got, you know, spy things that they're doing. And it's, and it's all for naught. Yeah. It's, it's for nothing, but here we are. And so what Charlie is, is soon made aware of is that now that she is back on the radar, now that they have found her again, the people that she was hunting when she was was you know, lost are, are now going to come after her because they are still, even though it's been eight years, they're still working on either the same or very similar projects to what they were doing back then. And so um, we we are told through a couple of slips of the tongue of various people um about a a man called Daedalus, right? So Charlie, one of the things that uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, Mitch Hennessy, finds is a, a suitcase that was left at her last residence. And inside this suitcase are some documents, some notes, some things like that. And so they begin trying to sort of figure out in classic gumshoe police procedural style, what does it all mean? So there's a note about a guy she claims that she can remember all these details about him. So he must be important to her. So they go find this guy and it's played by David Morse. Who's great. He's one of those dudes. The moment you see his face, you're like, Oh, I know that guy. Cause he's in tons and tons of stuff. Um, but they go to him thinking that she, he's like an old flame or like a fiance that uh, she had had. And they find out, no, he was actually her target. And that's why she knows all this stuff about him. She had been studying him. And so he is Daedalus and Daedalus is like a terrorist or a guy who helps terrorists. It's not really clear. None of it is really and clear. It's not clear. <laughs> and so they get into this altercation. She gets captured. He ends up using a water wheel in a mill to dunk her into freezing water. And this, the, the trauma of that causes her, her personality to fully reemerge. Right. Um, which it's a, it's, I mean, it's a, if you like Gina Davis's physicality, it's a good scene for that. It's, right? I and mean, it's really intense and, and she's, intense. 
she's very scary when she becomes evil spy lady because she yes. she's not a very likable person. Like the Charlie character is really kind of bad. I mean, you right. like that's the you mm. like the school teacher mom better than you like the the person that she supposedly is on the inside, which is a weird move. <laughs> That's a weird move. And we even have a character in the, in, in this case, Mitch Hennessy, who later in the films basically says that he's like, I kind of liked that school teacher. You're kind of, a, you know, you're kind of a bad person. Yeah. And, and it, it's a weird flex to, to put your main character who at this point you're establishing is sort of kind and nice and helpful. And then it's like, nah, <laughs> yeah. none of those things. Give me I a just want to murder folks. <laughs> Um, I mean, even to the point that when she, when Charlie's told, like, you have a child and she's eight and she loves you or whatever, she's like, fuck kids. I don't yeah. need kids. There's, like, oh. There is a strong, strong fuck kids message in this movie. Yeah. Kids are um, just regularly threatened with murder by everyone. <laughs> They're thrown out of holes in the side of houses. They're like hassled when they're trying to ice skate. Like this is very anti-kids. <laughs> it, it certainly seems to be. And it, it again, th this is a movie that is, is sort of burdened by its own excess. I will not say that it's terrible. This is still a watchable action film in, in chunks, but the the conflict with Daedalus ends with Charlie um, breaking out of her her restraints, uh, acquiring a gun, and then you know shooting Daedalus and and basically killing him, which is one thing that I as I was watching and sort of like you know jotting down my my notes, that is one thing that I think Shane Black is exceptionally good at. Um, Shane Black is a big purveyor of mid boss murder in his films, right? So there's a big bad guy that's at the top. But then there's always a successive line of smaller but yet still important bad guys that exist in the script solely for the main character to eliminate them in a variety of ways. The henchmen to, and the cronies. <laughs> that's right. You know, but but he's good about establishing those henchmen and cronies as being like really like important badasses. Yeah. And then they're still overcome. And that's something that I think a lot of modern action movies don't do. Like even a movie that I liked a lot, like John Wick, doesn't really do this correctly it doesn't give john wick a series of truly threatening villains to sort of churn through until the very end of the movie whereas that should be sort of out like he i mean he kills a lot of dudes don't get me wrong but none of them are of consequence right they're faceless it seems it seems dudes, like in modern you know? movies they just replace it with more bad guys rather than more interesting bad guys absolutely Yes, that is 100% the modern approach, right? We're just going to throw more random stunt guys at our at our hero, not people of consequence, right? Whereas Shane Black seems to treat it a little bit more like, you know, a Mortal Kombat game where he's like, oh, this is the middle, this is the mid-column boss that you have to kill before you get to Goro, right? You know, whatever. And and so that's good. Like, she kills Daedalus. You think Daedalus is like this big, important guy. She kills him and they're like, oh, well, he's not really the guy, right? There's another guy. <laughs> there's always and, and another guy. There's always another guy. And and it's just, it's a very, um, it's a good way to structure your script because you've got sort of constant escalating stakes. And so the real villain of this film is Timothy. They gave the, the cool name to the guy that gets shot. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then they gave the main bad guy of the film the name Timothy, which and, is is my name. Yeah, I, I will say that. And you know he's but, a really bad guy because he only has one name. He doesn't need to have more than one. The other guy was named Luke Dedalus. I don't know if you caught that, <laughs> but I did. Timothy is just Timothy. That, just that's Timothy. it. That's all you need to know. I mean, I'm just going to throw this out there based on my own experience. The name Timothy does very little to inspire fear yeah. in the hearts of people. Maybe that was the joke. Maybe I mean, Shane Black is very irreverent. I mean, he's he's well known for in his scripts writing to the reader and being like, um, the what's one of the examples that always gets pulled up? It's from Lethal Weaponry. He's like, this house looks like the one I'll buy if this script gets sold. Right? Like that <laughs> kind of thing. And and so like he's he understands how this stuff works, right? He's he's very, very mechanical. I would say that another, you know, sort of screenwriter that works in the Shane Black mold would be somebody like David Goyer, yeah. right? Who's who's constructing scripts as a craftsman, right? Not necessarily as an artist, even though artistry is involved, but as someone who simply understands the structure in which films are are written and built, and then is able to execute on that repeatedly. Yeah. Right? That's more what Shane Black is. And what this film maybe fails to do is to establish like a really clear and articulate villain and, and why that villain is so bad. So Timothy is played by Craig Bierko, yeah. who, like Gina Davis, there were many, many people in Hollywood who seemed to be working in the 1990s to make Craig Bierko a thing. It did not work. No. Um, unfortunately for Craig Bierko, who is a very nice man by all accounts. He seems like a wonderful dude. Um, I think the first time I may have been familiar with Craig Bierko or, or, or came back to him, because I had seen these movies as, as a young, young man, <clears throat> was, but I, I immediately forgot about Craig Bierko, right? Like nobody yeah. was like, oh, Bierko, right? Didn't happen. But I came back to him later and, and he became indelible in my mind because eventually, after years of it being locked away, the unaired pilot for the Red. North American yep. re-release of Red Dwarf, none other than Craig Bierko played Lister, the main character. Which, I don't know how series. I feel about that, but uh, it's it a bad choice. It's, whoa. <laughs> Uh, Craig um, Bierko is is a sort of classically handsome dude, and and Dave Lister is not one of those. Yeah, like that's at, the at least joke. the character. <laughs> that's the joke. Um, so Red Dwarf. I mean, and, and I don't want to necessarily I, turn this into a Red Dwarf podcast, although we could. Yeah, well, yes. Um, Red Dwarf is is by far one of my favorite British television programs. Yes. Um, it is brilliant from top to bottom. It's glorious. It's it's and it and it needs no American. Fiction. No, which is why the fact that they killed this thing before it ever reached the light of day was a great choice. Now, I remember he, him he from played Lister. the 13th floor, which was... Yes, that was the next one we were going to talk about. Which was also not good. And I don't... It's not as not good as this. It's not like... It's not this... It's not Long Kiss Goodnight bad. But right. it is not a good movie. And unfortunately, it came out the same year as The Matrix. And it had very Matrixy exactly. things in it. And it was just absolutely slaughtered by what a cool movie The Matrix was. Sorry, <laughs> 13th Floor. 
Sorry, 13th floor, you done got beat. Um, yes, I mean, as happens in Hollywood, once a, a script starts circulating that's getting a lot of buzz, you'll find a lot of people who are like, I could write a script like that. And then, you know, you get your uh, deep impact that comes out right around the same time as Armageddon. And, you know, it, it happens. And and it, um, it kind of sums up that, like, that is the kind of movie that you're more likely to find Craig Bierko starring in. That it would be like the knockoff movie. And like, I don't, he's, he's a perfectly nice person, I'm sure. But that's just the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just the way the cookie crumbles in Hollywood sometimes. Sometimes you're Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. Sometimes you're Craig Bierko in Third. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the, the unruly nature of the Hollywood machine. And I gotta say, in The Long Kiss Goodnight, I did enjoy the scenes that he was in because I felt yes. like he was making an attempt to give that character some edge and some interest. It didn't work because I just don't think it's nope. a good villain. It's not a good character and he had terrible lines. But I could really tell that he was trying to do the very, very best with that script. Kind of like Gina Davis, kind of like Samuel L. Jackson. They were just doing the best with what they had in front of them. Right. And and it all feels like they're in different movies. Yes. Gina Davis seems like she's trying to be sort of a, you know, a female spy, right? Tough, hard. As the film goes on, she she develops a bit of a conscience, right? She begins to sort of blend the personalities and, and you can see her working that together, right? Especially towards the end, she's trapped for a brief moment in a, a freezer with her daughter. And, and you see that, that sort of Charlie-ness melt and, and sort of blend where she's got the fierce determination of the trained CIA killer. But yet she also has the tenderness that she developed being a mother to this, this young girl. And, and she's blending those and Gina Davis is a great actress. So she pulls that off. But so she's doing that, which is, is, you know, legitimately difficult. Then you've got Samuel L. Jackson just like wearing plaid he's, pants. He's in, in his own lethal funnin'. weapon movie. He's because yeah, that's like, he felt the most out of place in this story yes. because he should have been in like a funnier movie. Well, his character to me in the original and this is all supposition, obviously. But I would bet almost anything that after the Daedalus compound, right? Where they like figure out, Oh, I'm a super spy. I would bet in the original script, because this is what makes the most sense. That character exited the film, right? He's like, peace out. And then maybe he pops in at the end to like offer some assistance. Hey, I came to check on you, but uh, that character doesn't stay with the super spy anymore. There's yeah. no reason for them to, they're just baggage at that point. She doesn't need him. He's not adding anything. Um, other than perhaps a few moments of expertise that are constructed later in the film. But because Sam Jackson was hot, like hot, hot. Now we're going to extend that character into the rest of the film. And he was initially supposed to die. That's known from the the first test screenings right. In the initial screenings. He died in that film. I don't know where there are some clear points where it probably happened, especially in the third act, but they chose to, to keep his character alive because the audience has expected it. You can't kill Sam Jackson in a film, um, at least at that stage, I guess. And so what you have then is like these two characters that spend most of their screen time together acting in different films. 
And then you've got Birko over here just like chewing scenery and I'll kill your daughter. Blah, yeah, like he's he's know. really trying to Birko. be mustache twirly and I I really appreciate that he tried. Right, because that's what this film needs. This film needs to stop taking itself so goddamn seriously. Yeah. Um that's part of the problem. Although and, and maybe it has there are flashes a lot, of it at the end. It but. has a lot of humorous needle drops. Uh yes. Just really out of place music. And and out of place music that always comes after a like a jump cut. Yep. Like, Usually, as they're driving in like a car or something. And there's a yeah. lot of car driving scenes. A lot of that. A lot of car driving scenes. Um, and then there's the the weird moment where uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson is captured. I don't know if you noticed this. This just really bothered me. I, uh, I don't want to forget yeah. about it. No good. Where he's like stripped naked. And and mm-hmm. has obviously been tortured, and he looks terrified. And the movie, it's and it's like Charlie is coming to rescue him, but he doesn't know that, so he's just watching through cracks in the floor, like, oh my god, I'm gonna get murdered. And then the movie hard cuts to just humorous music and a little montage scene, and it was so weird. <laughs> like, what? <And> <laughs> And it's probably because that's where his character was probably going to exit the film. Oh my God. They had to change it for whatever reason. Um, But yeah, let's, let's talk about the music there. The score is, is whatever it's fine. Um, There's, there's really nothing wrong with it uh, in any, you know, strong sense of the word. It's, it's perfectly serviceable. Um, But the, the needle drops are, are, problematic at best it's a lot of 90s alternative which does not jive with either of the movies that we find ourselves in not the 70s um you know it definitely not the 70s like you know a lot of detective it just, movie it just felt like it should have been in a funny movie i mean these felt like more diehard style musical interludes and this is this movie, like, it was always, it came at a time when it felt like it should be much more serious. And then it would cut to, like, humorous musical interlude. It was bizarre. <laughs> One thing I did notice was, uh, what was it called? Is it FYT? Uh, the first single off of Semisonic's album that would eventually lead to closing time. Uh, that one's in there. Uh, there's a lot of Christmas music, of course, because yeah. it's a Shane Black Christmas movie. That's what he do. Uh, and there is like a fair, you know, fair bit of Motown that's normally played when Samuel L. Jackson is on screen, but it's it's just it's very scattershot. It it again feels like they didn't have, and what I'm gonna guess is Harlan didn't have a real grasp of the overall sort of tone and direction of the film. Uh, it's just sort of whatever seems to fit the moment, rather than what fits the overall story being told. Yeah. And so the um. Oh, oh, the other thing. Uh, it's FNT by Semisonic, sorry. And the, the other thing, this this movie has a Jars of Clay song in it. <laughs> Weird. I just, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to put that on the record. Um, I, I used to go to the... Um, uh, dear listeners, I used to go to the concert, the yearly concert held at the college that Jars of Clay graduated from, and they used to play at uh, when they were a very, very small band. Uh, and then got very large because of a couple of singles. And uh, I just found it just tremendously, tremendously funny that 
jars of clay who i assume don't have many songs on soundtracks this is one of them that's just that's a good one uh that's fun that's fun for that's fun for me to think about uh but anyway so the way this film is going eventually charlie is contacted or, or makes contact with the cia they want to bring her in but she detects that there may be some deception and and what we ultimately find is that the cia is in on whatever timothy and daedalus were up to which we find out is is called project honeymoon and, and which I've, then becomes what does that mean the, it doesn't mean anything they keep talking um, about it <laughs> they they it it leads to a single line joke at the end that's it uh, so, so Charlie has to stop for reasons unknown, uh, because I guess she's deep down a good person has to stop them. Uh, they eventually kidnap her daughter because of course, and, and the, the sort of gut punch reveal, which is another sort of Shane black, you know, sort of Shane black staple at some point in the third act, a character is going to get a piece of information that rocks their world, makes them reassess their situation, you know, blah, blah, blah. In this case, it doesn't happen to Charlie, who has already had, I guess, enough bombastic reveals, but instead it happens to Timothy. And Timothy finds out that Charlie's daughter, the one she washed up pregnant with on you know, the shoreline, uh, is actually Timothy's daughter. I did not so, believe the movie when it did this. I, it, I was like, this is bullshit. They're going to turn around and she'll be so lying straight. about it. This would be a joke that she did to try and mess with him. That would be sure. great. No. But nope. It actually is her dad. Uh. And then he proceeds to attempt to murder her uh. for the rest of the film. Which, again, weird approach. Strange flex to be like, yeah, I mean, it may be my kid. I don't care. And they do this thing where he says, he has, she has your eyes. And, and I don't know if they hired that <laughs> child actress because she had like the weird or like the, the sort of droopy eyes that Craig Bierko has. But when they do the slow push in shot onto that girl's face, as he's supposedly like, it's the reverse of him, like looking deeply at her eyes. And it's just these sleepy little kid eyes. <laughs> I just lost it. I, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Why did you pick this actor, this actress for this? She's got no life in those eyes. It's just a board. It's just I'm looking at wood with eyes painted on it. It's it was so funny. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Kind of an amazing twist. It's it's a great twist because it does nothing and it means yeah. nothing. Like if he had had like a moment of 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 like maybe I shouldn't be this horrible asshole that's going to murder everyone that would mean something but that's not what happens he it does nothing to adjust the course of the character at all so the girl gets uh, they've got a truck they're going to blow it up in a town kill a bunch of people make it look like a, a middle eastern terrorist yeah. did it there's terrorists because there's the chemical 90s. bombs yeah like it, and and they're going to frame this guy for it so that the CIA can ask for a bigger budget for Congress. Oh my god. <laughs> Which may be the most 90s premise for a film ever. Yeah. Right? It's not about internet. It's not really about international terrorism. No. It's not really about peace in our time. It's about budget appropriations in the Senate. I love it. When it's, <laughs> oh, the it Clinton reminds era. me it reminds me of like the first time that that a 
that a kid tries to write like a spy thriller. Like if I, if a child sat down and tried to pen a story and they'd be like, <laughs> and why did they do it? Uh, the government, they need the government money, or, the money or something. Oh, that sounds good. That's really good. Going to stick it to the man. It's it's honestly uh, in in prep for this. I was kind of like, you know, I want to revisit a few more Shane Black scripts just to see all of the the sort of like repeated elements that he tends to involve. And and so I, I rewatched the Last Boy Scout, which I remember loving as a kid. Like I remember I loved the Last Boy Scout. That scene where he like drives that dude's nose bone into his brain, fucking gold. So I rewatch it. Um, does not hold up. No. Mm-mm, not at all. But when I watched Long Kiss Goodnight after watching that one, it's easy to forget that The Last Boy Scout is about a bunch of football team owners who are going into some kind of ring to control gambling on their games. That's what the whole thing is about. Everything that they've done, all the people they've killed, is so they can reap a little bit more money from people betting on football games. That's it. That's the entire villain plot. You see, and, and what it made money runs the world. <laughs> it does, but it's this. It's the same trick, yeah. right? It's the haha. The old men need the monies, yeah. And it makes it made me realize that that's why John Wick was so refreshing. Yeah, is that the hero always has in classic eighties action films, and really any action film, the hero always has this really complex motivation for why they need to do what they need to do. I've got to grow. I've got to change. I've got to discover who I really am. I've got to save the love of my life. You know, these really like deep, easy to grab, like emotional things that we can say, Oh, I get why the hero is doing the human condition and all that. Right. But then the villains have these like very worldly, very basic, very, you know, needs driven, motivations right uh you know even hans gruber right i just want the money i don't <laughs> give a shit about the world Pete. you know i don't give a shit about all these other people i just need the bonds and and that and so i guess that really that's what john wick that did that made it so unique is that it flipped that where the villain and john wick actually had all these very big motivations i've got to protect my family i've got to keep my empire running and then john wick's the guy's like you killed my dog yeah that's and, why i'm gonna kill you and it's it I think like the films have definitely flipped where villain motivation is a huge thing. Um, You know, look at what we've done to the character of Loki in the Marvel universe, how we've taken that from a a villain to being a, you know, this sympathetic character. Oh my God. He's a hero. Uh, um, Which is fine. Like I know everybody likes that character and they want to be allowed to like him. So we got to make him a good guy now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we have, especially Disney, I guess they're leading this charge and redefining villains because they helped, you know, define movie villains in some aspects before sure. that, yeah. you know, we have movies like Maleficent where we're taking, you know, the ultimate, you know, black and white villain that is just very, I enjoy being evil and giving them some sort of you know tragic story. So my this, name sounds like malevolent. So like this movie but I'm nice. <laughs> so this movie like works even less now. It's even harder yeah. to watch movies like this because we don't have any of that. And yeah, we're not prepared it, for this anymore. <laughs> right. You know, I was I was kind of trying to remember uh the main driving force of Under Siege. 
and and I, I know it's in the same mold, but I'd have to go back and watch it again because that, especially with the second one where they're on the train, that's basically it. But the first one on on the boat, I don't remember exactly what the villain plot of that was. But I I think we would see this this trend continue. But here it just feels especially especially weak, right? It's like really that's that's what you're doing. That's the the whole thing is that. Um, so it really all comes to a head. The reason it's called Project Honeymoon is because they're going to blow up Niagara Falls. Ta-da! Because what do people do at Niagara Falls? They get married. They go on their it honeymoon. probably the would have been better if they had just thing. left it unexplained. If we just yeah, never found been. out what it was. Never known why. So the, the final action scene, which admittedly staged well. I mean, Harlan knows how to blow some shit up. Like, he is not bad at that. And he knows how to film it and make it look pretty good. The explosion at the end that sort of picks up the car and pushes it like they're trying to escape. And they're so close to the explosion. It picks up the rear end of the car and like pushes them forward. Very cool. Done practically with a bit of, you know, sort of compositing in there to sort of make the explosion look bigger. But it's good. It's great. It's really good. Um, you know, there's a semi truck that's going to blow up. It's got some kind of chemical agent in it. Again, it's all MacGuffins and nobody knows and it doesn't matter. I, I do have to say, I love scenes where children's toys are used for destructive or murderous purposes. We've talked about that before. And in this one, she fills a, like a, a Sally Wetzel, I don't even know what they'd be called, but a doll that pees, basically. Yeah. She fills it with gasoline so that she can get out of a situation, presumably just knowing that she was going to be captured. So she filled the doll with gasoline as a, a recourse. Um, and, and uses that to escape. And it's funny and it's, you know, it's a good inventive scene. It, it speaks to Charlie's willingness to plan and, and think, but you know, gas is like real smelly, like it's like real smelly. And I really have a hard time not, thinking that they would recognize that it smelled like gas because they were like just throwing a little, it around and stuff. Just using the doll it was just a little overwrought. I mean, she could have just poured yeah. the gas from anywhere. Yeah, from I mean, there's just gas. That's fine. She didn't have to take the girl's doll and put gas in it. That just felt... But, why? You know? Like, I, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's neat. It's a little It's a little thing. This, that's this scene's thing. Um, it's, that's, <laughs> it's, this, it's the thing in the scene. That's right. But I, I kind of wish that there were fewer things. It felt like every scene had a thing in it. And they were all so vastly different right. and terrible. And, and honestly, Shane Black is, is generally very good at that. Like, he is, is very good at making his characters shift to their back foot and have to think creatively to solve a situation. That's one of the reasons why I think Shane Black's Iron Man 3 is maybe the best Iron Man is because it takes the suit away from Tony Stark and he is forced to improvise and we see him as that ingenious fast thinking creator that can get out of a problem. And that's, that helps, you know, sort of solidify his character and it's really good. But in this case, it, it just seems wasteful. Like it's like it's this isn't necessary. You're just doing it because you know I expect to see this kind of thing in action movies. So um, there are a couple of great stunts towards the end. Uh, a little bit of weak martial arts on Gina Davis's part. I think just some slow punches and dodging and stuff. But it it doesn't look bad. Um, but there is a really great one when when she does free Mitch Hennessy. There's a huge explosion and he blows out the side of a building and through a sign, um, which he would 
just be dead. He'd yeah. totally be dead. No questions asked. Like no human being is going to survive that under any circumstances. He does. Um, but it, it's a great stunt. It looks really good. So there's certainly some bright spots there um, as, as things kind of culminate. And then uh, eventually it's a helicopter bridge battle. Right? She's on the bridge. There's a helicopter. Craig Bierko's in a helicopter. He's screaming the word Bierko for reasons we don't understand. <laughs> um, at least that's what I would have been doing. I would have been, Bierko! And he's trying to shoot her. And she uses a string of... A guy who is wrapped in a string of Christmas lights, which is another thing that Shane Black loves to do. He loves to take Christmas decorations <laughs> in his movies and use them as killing weapons. And And so a guy's hung up in there and she... What does she do? She like cuts the Christmas lights and that pulls her up. And so she's able to grab the gun out of the dead guy's hand and shoot Bierko. And then, you know, he falls on top of the truck and gets blown up. And and then they live happily ever after. She becomes half Charlie, half Samantha Kane. She don't really get any resolution on, on what happens to the Charlie part of her in any satisfying way. She just kind of drives around in a convertible, like Rita Hayworth for a minute. And then, Everything apparently is fine, and she's hooked back up with the guy she was dating when she was Samantha, even though she didn't really seem that happy with him to begin with. The daughter is there. They've moved. The CIA wants her back as a secret agent, so we could obviously have some sequel bait, which ain't happening. (laughs) No one took the bait. (laughs) No one took that bait. They even had a title for it. It was like uh, The Last Kiss of Lightning or something like that. I mean, like, come on. Anyway, so, so that wraps up the film. Uh, I guess, you know, since we're trying to keep it quick, we can, we can sort of come to our summaries now. I think this is a film within Shane Black's like career, which has generally been extremely successful. This is a bit of an odd duck. Yeah. It feels sort of half formed. The fact that he, I mean, as far as I know, I, I have no idea what he made off some of his later scripts that he directed, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or something. But this script is the script that Shane Black made the most money on of all the scripts that he did. It's Rennie Harlan's favorite movie that he has ever made. And if you look at Rennie Harlan's filmography, (laughs) that is understandable. I completely get that. I am very proud of this one. (laughs) There ain't a lot to love in the Rennie Harlan. You know, we got that Hercules. He is an enigma wrapped in a vest. I want to understand. Brother, call me. I want to talk. Like a lot of those 80s action directors, and even Tony Scott, I would include in this because I would really probably include Ridley Scott. They're they're workmen. They're they're craftsmen who know how to make movies. The mechanics, the, the, you know, the, the project management of making films. They do that and they do it well. But the artistic side, the expressive side, the side that says, okay, not just what can I do, but what should I do to create this scene to compel a reader or to compel a viewer to follow me on this journey? That's not there. Right. And, and Rennie Harlan has unfortunately been the butt of so many of these circumstances, right? Like, um, so you remember the, the Exorcist prequel that they did, right? Yeah. So Paul Schrader shoots the Exorcist sequel. They do the studio does not like it. So they bring in Rennie Harlan to reshoot a bulk of the film, use some of Schrader's, 
release that as Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. It also bombs because <laughs> nobody cares about a prequel to The Exorcist. And so then they just take Harlan's version, toss it, reinstate Schrader's version, and release that one six months later Weird. or something. I mean, like, and that stuff has happened to Harlan again and again and again. He's he's one of those directors that has been on the cusp of super success from the Just moment he misses it Hollywood. by that much every time. Exactly. I mean, what's the, I mean, just what's the best nightmare on Elm street movie? Well, that depends. I'm going to say three. Um, three was really which, good. I mean, it was, which one did Rennie Harlan direct Four. Four. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which diehard is the best one, which one did Rennie Harlan direct two, two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just he's just one step off every time. Yeah, he and made he made the big budget blockbuster pirate movie, but it was before anybody cared about. But it pirates. was before Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean. You know, it's just it's this weird situation. And the dude's obviously had some success. Unfortunately, his relationship with Davis exploded a few years later when she found out that he was cheating on her the whole time. Which, <laughs> as a Gina Davis fan, I'm like seriously, <laughs> wow. Um, but it's it's just a strange. It's a strange world. I mean, I guess he has had a few successes. He did Deep Blue Sea, which a lot of people love. I don't care for that one, but it's, it's you know. It's a cult it's got favorite. killer sharks. It's a cult favorite. He works with Samuel L. Jackson again. You know, it's it's good. It's fine. Um, it more felt recently, at least funny. Like, Deep Blue Sea at least kind of yeah. nailed the humor that I think I think maybe this movie might have benefited from. I can't decide if this movie needed to be more serious or more funny. It just had to be more of something. Right. It's it's too much in the middle, right? And it could be studio interference. Very famously, a lot of Rennie Harlan's movies have been interfered with at a high level at studios because tons were writing on the project. And unfortunately, the result is that he doesn't make movies in the United States anymore. No, I he mean, has returned to Finland, and he is making movies. Yeah, I think actually right he lives somewhere else. He went to China for a while, made oh, yeah. some movies yeah, in China Finland for a little anymore. while. Um, but I think he is like in Bulgaria or something now. Yeah, I don't know. He doesn't make movies exactly for for American markets, so it means you don't see any of the things that he makes. He had some some movies that were big budget in China. They they weren't successful always. Again, no. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm kind of fascinated by his career because like you said, it feels like he's always circling a really big movie and he's circling success, but he never quite hits it. Yeah, and I you know, I'm not gonna say I feel bad for him. He's had yeah, a good career. No. He's obviously doing fine. <laughs> Dude's for making himself. money, he's fine. <laughs> but it it definitely is one of those things that you look at and go like what if? Like, what if this had happened instead of this? And he's one of those directors. Um, How can I have seen this many of his movies and not really like any of them? <laughs> yeah, they're all problematic. None of them really execute correctly. Um, well, correctly is probably the wrong term, but none of them really execute on even their basic premises. And, and in, in the case of a Shane Black script, I would probably give more weight to the fact that the director made decisions that diminished the capability of the script. And, just not, and not just because I believe in Shane Black. Shane Black has made bad movies or, or middling movies at the very least, which is probably where this falls. But 
with this one, there seems to be a spark of something that could have been in the script and either it wasn't in the script itself and needed further development or Harlan was not able to sort of settle into a definitive understanding of what this movie was and then execute on it. It seems like, like some of the jokes, some of the, the, humorous some of the moments in the script that could have been interesting it like i said it really felt like there was just no more there were no extra takes there was no opportunity for the actors to explore anything with those characters because it felt like it was just we got it it's good we don't need to do that scene again right and maybe that was it maybe it was was so so over you know always on the cusp of going over budget or something that they were just moving as fast as they possibly could. And that's never necessarily, that's rarely a good thing for an action film. Cause one thing action films need is time, right? You need time to stage action. You need time to, to set up believable dialogue scenes between when you need characters. tension, you know, yeah. and you have to like tension has to have a little bit of time to build. I don't know. And, and this, this movie, movie just doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it. As long as this movie is, it feels like it's still missing vital pieces. Yeah. Right. And, and it mostly feels less that they need to add things in than they need to take stuff out and replace it with more important stuff. <laughs> um, like there's, there's a take whole Take everything that's in this movie and replace it with better things. <laughs> better things. Like there's a whole sequence at the end of this movie where Timothy says... You have to be at this hotel to receive a phone call from me at this time or else I'll kill the girl or something. And so instead of just doing that, they break into a phone company, take everyone hostage, and then make them run a patch to the the hotel to pretend to be the phone at the hotel so that they can harness the call and then trace it. That's the way that they chose to have them figure out where Timothy was hiding. We got to do spy shit. Is that not clever? I I don't know, but that's a really fucking convoluted way to have your heroes figure out where your villains are. And I mean, we, we make fun of tropes. We make fun of things that are these bolt together movies, but at the same time, if you get too out there with how your scene is set up, the audience can't come with you. They just can't. Yeah. It just opens up all these questions and it's like, I don't know. I mean, cause it's as easy as you, as the character, Charlie, who is an amnesiac, who's slowly recovering memories saying, Oh, I remember. And then you just go to the place. Like nobody's going to question it. It's fine. You know, or like this movie doesn't, this movie is not taking any questions from anybody though. (laughs) No. You know, nothing will be answered. No knowledge will be given. No You're in the dark. And, and, you know, what we get is a middling action spy thriller with a few brilliant action set pieces, really nicely done. Um, a stellar performance from Gina Davis, who was really operating at the top of her game. She's doing the best with what she's been given. Sam Jackson doing what Sam Jackson did in the mid-1990s, which is say funny things, be irreverent. Drop f bombs. Drop f bombs as many as you can, and and Craig Bierko. Yep, the most Bierko <laughs> of Bierkos, and and he's fine too. 
at least he looks like he's having a good time. Yeah. Uh, I will say the movie looks pretty good. It does. And that has a lot to do with the fact that it was shot by Guillermo Navarro. Longtime collaborator. I think he's basically done nearly every movie that Guillermo del Toro has ever done, including Kronos, which he did right before this. Um, so there's a reason why the night scenes, especially there's a ton of this movie that takes place at the, in the dead of night and it still looks crisp and clear and easy to read what's happening on screen. And in the 1990s with the film technology that they had, that was not easy. Didn't he also and do from dusk till dawn? I do believe so. Yes, he did. He works with Robert Rodriguez quite a bit because he right before this, he did Desperado Four Rooms from Dust Till Dawn and then another movie uh, back in Mexico, like basically all in the same year. And so, you know, he did Jackie Brown with Quentin Tarantino the year after this. So he reunited with Samuel L. Jackson again. Um, and, and then, you know, he's done pretty much everything with Humor uh, del Toro ever since. And a bunch of other stuff too, but it's, he's good. Like he's a great DP and, and that's obvious in, in how this film goes. So uh, I guess let's, you know, wrap up on long kiss. Good night. Again, we're trying to keep this quick, a little Christmas quickie uh, for the failure piece theater folks. But uh, so final thoughts on long kiss. Good night. We've obviously been pretty mixed on this movie. So where do you come down? Is it a recommend or is it a maybe if it's on TBS on a Sunday afternoon and you're really tired and you don't want to get up off the couch or you can't find the remote? If you it's our scenario here. If you are, as I am about to be trapped in an airport, sure, watch this movie, stream it. Um, but if Which not is streaming free on Tubi. <laughs> And that's that's how I watched it. You know, you have you have some ads, but but yeah, you know, if you're going to be trapped somewhere for an extended period of time, you don't have anything else to watch. Why not? It's it's not a movie that you really have to invest much in because there's nothing to invest in. But I I don't think I would choose to watch this movie, and I guess that's why I find it so interesting. That's why I find. But, you know, the, the whole reason we did this is I find Rennie Harlan's catalog really, really weird. Um, mm-hmm. So if you are also disturbed by how a director can be involved in franchises and projects and things that are so popular and so cool and yet make really, really bad entries into them. Yeah, check <laughs> this out. Um, it's maybe one of the most bloated and excessive 90s action movies I've ever seen. I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, I think this film is worth watching just because I think it represents the absolute last gasp of the 80s action template. Um, The template that was about to be completely stomped into the dirt by an eagle-eyed man with golden hair and and immaculate taste in leather jackets. Um, Because Michael Bay was about to just blockbust all over that crop duster for, scene for better or for worse michael bay is among us and i'm not going to say that everything that came with michael bay's ascent to to action director stardom was bad um michael bay has 
basically created an environment wherein your action movie, your your big sort of action movie with explosions and car chases, it better look fucking amazing. Yeah. Because when your audience walks into that room, if it's not, they're going to call you out on it. That's why the Fast and Furious franchise has had to go the direction that it's gone. The original Fast and the Furious is a tiny movie, right? It's like four cars racing down two streets in downtown Los Angeles. When, and Done. directors like Michael Bay have made the upping the stakes of movies work somehow. Whereas, it you know, with movies in the 90s, we saw, like you said, with the second entry in a franchise, always, you know, really taking it to the next level, really you know, blowing up this story, making it so convoluted, so over the top. He is the only director that has has made that a blueprint. Yeah, and made it work. Yeah. Consistently. Like provably this is how you 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 can design your template. And, you know, he's had his missteps too. I'm not trying to paint him as some kind of genius. No. He, he sucks. Like he, to be clear, he, Michael he Bay sucks. <laughs> but he rewrote he rewrote the visual language of the action film. Almost single-handedly. And, it, and it, honestly, if the Matrix hadn't happened and the Wachowskis hadn't brought that visual language into action films, I think the landscape of action today would not be nearly as diverse and interesting as it is. For sure. And, and so I'm, I'm glad that those things happen. And there were other things happening, too. I mean, I, I am grossly simplifying an, a complex economy of film. To, to discuss this, but uh, the long kiss goodnight will always remain this sort of final push of the eighties action model into the sort of bloated over the top nineties excess that defined that eras of action films. Right. So it's an eighties film. And honestly, Shane Black probably wrote it in the fucking eighties. If we're being honest, he's probably been sitting on that script for a decade and somebody was like, hey, dude, you got a script? And he's like, well, I got this one. I can just fart out in a weekend because I already wrote it. <laughs> right. And then he sold it for $4 million. And Universal was like, what did we just buy? Like, I don't know. <laughs> did anyone read it was this? Oh Shane Black God. wrote it. He wrote Lethal Weapon. We'll put it as from the guy who wrote Lethal Weapon. It'll make a billion dollars and we'll be fine. And we'll and get then, Rennie uh, Harlan to do it. <laughs> right. Because what else is he doing? Nothing. He made Cutthroat Island. He owes us. And it's it's just a strange thing. Uh, I will say on on the you know just one last note on Rennie Harlan. I did see a film of his several years ago. Now I want to say it was pretty early in my my like streaming Netflix days, like maybe twenty. It wasn't that long ago, but it was on Netflix for a period of time. Uh, but it's called Devil's Pass, mm-hmm. and it's a found footage film, or at least as much of a found footage film as somebody like Rennie Harlan can make. He just can't do it. Like there are points in this film where it's like, this isn't found footage anymore. <laughs> Whatever. Um, but it's it's uh, about a sort of famed location in Russia where lots and lots of people have disappeared. People, you know, group of people go in very Blair Witch style to investigate, try and find remnants, blah blah blah. Discover strange shit. Weird shit starts happening. A little bit of a horror movie. Um, surprisingly okay, very small, super small scale, super small cast, um, one or two locations, like it's very stripped down. But in that stripped down, Rennie Harlan can't get too weird, and as a result, it ends up being pretty okay. Well, and it goes so back to, to kind of his 
his earlier roots with making horror movies. Because some of his earliest stuff was horror. So Yes, he seemed to be pretty into that genre. Maybe that's a better place for him. Perhaps, <laughs> yes. Certainly not making Hercules movies with Twilight. <laughs> Probably not that. What, Kellen Lutz? Isn't that, that guy's name? Uh, yeah, Kellen Lutz. He's the, the big one. The, the burly dude. The guy. Um, but so I, I do recommend it. I do recommend it just as this weird artifact, right? Like if you are a fan of action films, either classic or modern, and you've never seen The Long Kiss Goodnight, I think watching it could be an informative exercise. It definitely to sort of explains see how action movies have transitioned. Yeah, and it, and it definitely explains why a certain type of action movie is no longer made. Yes. Yeah, cuz there are certain types. Like I don't I honestly don't think a movie like Die Hard could work now. No. Well, it it can't. I mean, they tried to they continue to try and make Die Hard movies and they just get progressively worse. And and they tried it to, to re sort of templify it or, or re templatize it, if you want to call it that with like skyscraper, that, that rock yeah. movie, right. Where he's trapped in the skyscraper, but it's not just like a building. It's a, it's like the Burj Khalifa and it's exploding all around. And he's got to <laughs> jump between buildings. Like it, it's just the, the, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Like the, the most exciting thing that happens in die hard is that, he ties himself to a fire hose and jumps off the roof. Yeah. And the like, whole movie the builds e- up to that moment. Right. It's like, huge. He's not jumping between buildings. He's not leaping no. to a flying helicopter while he shoots. No, people. he walks on some like, glass. That's terrible. Crawls around <laughs> in some ducks, almost falls down an elevator shaft. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's just like the scale of Die Hard and the movies of that era. When you go back and watch them now, after seeing, you know, again, convicts flying a plane and people blowing up asteroids and transformers. Like after you, you, when you go back to Die Hard, it's like this quaint little thing. It's like this adorable little, like, Oh, look at them. They're trying so hard, but it's better because that scale is appropriate yeah. for, for the story being told. And it's, it's a weird spot. But so long kiss goodnight certainly fits into that, that little microcosm of the eighties, nineties action amalgam. Which, ironically enough, Shane Black commented on, deconstructed, and meta-narrated in The Last Action Hero, and then apparently turned around and was like, well, I'll just do it for real this time. Oh. I won't poke fun at it. I'll just make one of those. And, uh, and then he did. Again, that's what makes me think that the script was probably written in like 1986, and he just never sold it. But who knows? All right. Uh, well, I guess we'll wrap it up. Uh, if anyone uh, goes and watches Long Kiss Goodnight on Tubi for free with ads, um, no sign up required. I'll go ahead and say that. <laughs> <laughs> we're a Tubi podcast now. <laughs> I will say Tubi has been a wonderful. I, I did sign up for it, and it's been a wonderful thing because there is so much garbage on Tubi. Oh my. God. Tubi sponsorship coming soon. <laughs> oh, I would take it in a heartbeat because I will recommend this service to the moon. Old so, the you know how every time a Conjuring movie comes out and then they just <laughs> take and rebrand a bunch of movies that are sort of have like ghosts in it to Conjuring lookalike movies? Tubi's got all of them. Yay. All of them. American Nun. 
<laughs> so <laughs> on and so forth. <laughs> They're everywhere. Um, and so that's that's been a delight. They also had the Tremors movies for a while, so I actually watched hey, a couple Tremors. of the Tremors sequels. Uh, the original Tremors is great, though. That movie is That's so a perfect good. movie. We will never talk per- about that a- on this podcast because it's nope, a perfect it's movie. it's a perfect film. It's it's the script is chef's kiss all the way through pitch perfect characterization plot delivery exposition michael gross climax it's (laughs) reba mcintyre it's wonderful kevin bacon is killing it perfect fred ward fred ward and and fred ward's butt wow yeah in those dad jeans holy cow those levi 505s looking pretty Good. Let's all take a moment for Fred Ward's butt. That's a, that's like a high note to end, you know, long kiss good night, I think. It is. That's right. Talking about a much better <laughs> film called Trevor. All right. So if somebody wants to uh, watch Long Kiss Goodnight on Tubi and then find you on the internet to tell you just how much they hated it or loved it, where could they do that? Um, I am I am found on Twitter at Baskinator and please talk to me about this movie. I still don't understand what I experienced. That's right. We need we need differing perspectives to kind of, to truly understand what is what what has transpired. Uh, so the same goes for me. You can find me at T Baskin on Twitter, or you can get us at F Peace Theater together. And if you have an email, you want to send us something longer, you can email us at failurepeace at gmail Send me your thesis right. about Rennie Harlan movies. Yeah, as many Rennie Harlan movies, uh, Rennie Harlan movies as you want to discuss, we'll do it. <laughs> there's Driven in there too. Oh God, about Driven, right? Everybody loves Driven. Um, that's certainly a film that took place, and people may have seen, possibly, probably not. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Screenplay by Sylvester Stallone himself. Uh, uh, anyway. Uh, so yeah, uh, we'll be fine. Uh, you can find us on, uh, the internet, come by, give us a chat, let us know what you think. And, uh, we'll get back to you, of course. Uh, so we're going to go on a brief hiatus as, uh, Catherine begins her long journey to the, the frozen North. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so who, who greets you at the, the airport? Is it, is it polar bears? Is um, that what's there? It's either polar bears or the Swedish chef. I hope it's the Swedish chef. Okay. I mean, either way, whichever one it is, they're going to drape the carcass of a seal on your shoulders. Like that's what they, they give you if like they a don't, clubbed baby seal. They just home. drape it. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a fitting welcome gift. And then you have, <laughs> you have some nice blubber. You've got some skin you can craft into a nice parka. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the ideal gift no. for moving to Sweden. No. Uh, I don't know. I only know about America. That's my experience in America. We just, well, you get off the plane in America and we just kick you in the nuts. Yeah, well, <laughs> we we're like, you, you know. welcome to another couple decades of that, sir. <laughs> but freedom. That yeah. is just freedom. <laughs> I'd much rather have a polar bear with a seal car because I'd be like, thank you. It's at least. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we're going to go on a brief hiatus while you yeah. get situated. And then uh, once you are safely installed in, in beautiful, glorious, sauna filled Sweden. <laughs> Um, we'll get back to the discussion of failure pieces, the cinematic dregs that Hollywood tries to shove under the welcome mat of the front door of Hollywood. Yes. Um, the front door of, of cinemas and just say, hey, if, if you want, there's one under there. That is the Plenty. one we want to talk about. And we'll get back to it as quick as we can. 
Uh, but as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye bye.